So we're going to take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses of Revelation 19. So if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1247. 1247. Revelation 19. And this, we remember as we read, is the word of God. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our God, our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us his word. One of the tasks I had at Westminster Seminary a few years ago uh, was to teach a course on worship. Um, it's a great course to teach, a very challenging one. And this past January, I was invited to teach it once again after a number of years uh, of not teaching it. So I had to get my notes out again and have a look. Uh, because there's so much debate and discussion about worship and about worship styles right across the church, so that in some places it's been described as the worship wars uh, much of the current debate uh, on modern or contemporary style of worship over against a more traditional approach, uh, that debate has really become quite sterile and for some people quite boring. Uh, so what, what we do in that course of study is to take students back uh, to the main biblical themes with regard to worship, try to get them beyond the superficial, the controversial matters, uh, relating to styles of worship, to the big themes uh, of what the Bible has to say about worship. 
And one of the main points, of course, that the Bible makes is that the goal and object of redemptive history is God calling out for himself a people who will worship him forever. In fact, you could say the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of God's quest to call together a worshiping community drawn from every nation under heaven. And the wonderful truth is that God achieves his goal and purpose. Uh, The final picture in the Bible is a picture of the people of God, an innumerable company gathered before him in praise and worship and adoration. Even now, those who have gone from this world to be with Christ are worshiping and serving God in his presence. And when we gather here on earth in worship, we have this heavenly dimension. We're not just uniting with all our brothers and sisters around the world who worship God in spirit and truth, but we're uniting with the church in heaven. As the old prayer book says, we're united with angels, with archangels, with the whole company of heaven in rendering praise and worship to the Lord. The church militant on earth, the church triumphant in heaven, share in this same activity. Uh, Charles Wesley expressed it in one of his great hymns, let saints on earth in concert sing with those whose work is done for all the servants of our King in earth and heaven are one. Or you know the final stanza of the church's one foundation. It says the church, yet she on earth hath union with God to the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And we don't often think about that connection between the church on earth and the church in heaven, the mystic, sweet communion. And yet it's very instructive and very enriching for us who are part of the church here on earth to eavesdrop on the worship of our brothers and sisters in heaven. And as we listen to their worship, not only is our own worship enriched, but the the whole tone of our Christian lives here is transformed. And that's what we're allowed to do in Revelation 19. John says, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. What's particularly interesting and relevant to us is that this great sound was heard by John while he was caught up in a time of intense pain and suffering and persecution. The church on earth was experiencing the most bitter and intense period of oppression. The blood of Christian martyrs ran like a river across the Roman Empire. It was an awful time of suffering and trial and fierce persecution. And John himself was caught up in that suffering. Remember how he identifies himself in chapter 1, your brother, your companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus? Not only exiled on Patmos, not only prevented from being part of the fellowship of the church which he loved, he's also subjected to hard labor, quarrying stones, from the cliffs and in the mines on Patmos. And for an old man like John, 
that work was hard and painful and difficult. And you could imagine that occasionally he would be close to the beach, maybe down at the harbor, quarrying stones from the cliffs, bringing them down to the ships in the harbor so that they could be taken across the sea to build roads all across the Roman Empire. And as he looked out across the sea, he would be reminded of his brothers and sisters on the mainland of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And he thought of them as they faced the terror of persecution. And some of them even faced martyrdom. And he says, it was then that I heard the worship of the redeemed in heaven. That into this situation of suffering, (coughs) of pain, of heartache for his brothers and sisters, he was allowed to hear the song of worship in heaven. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He has a vision of the risen, glorified Christ. And Christ gives him this insight into this celestial gathering. And it changed John's perspective and experience. Folks, as you and I are caught up in the suffering, the pain, the frustration of this life, we too need to listen to the worship of the heavenly company. For what they say, what they shout, what they sing can renew and restore our perspective, can galvanize us, can fortify us for the hour of our trial. John sees and hears what's going on in heaven. Verse 4, the 24 elders, the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Two words that we know very well, even though strange words in many ways, we've made them part of our Christian vocabulary. Amen. So let it be. May God's will be done. And hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise be to Jehovah. And it is as the church on earth repeats that theme of heaven's worship, that she's drawn into the majestic worship of the saints and the elders around the throne. This poor, suffering, fragile people of God on earth begin to learn the language of their friends in glory so that the darkness and the pain and the disappointment of this world are illuminated and are transformed by the light and the joy of heaven. Listen again to what they say. Amen. Hallelujah. And I think there are at least four important notes that together make up the harmony of worship and the victory of faith. The first note of worship, I think, is in that word amen, the acceptance of the will of God. The soul that worships God in heaven is one which stands before his awesome presence and says, Amen, Lord. So let it be. May your will be done. That whatever may have been the earthly experience of those who are now in glory, whatever they may have suffered, whatever they may have endured, in the presence of God, there's no rebellion in their hearts. No doubt when they were involved in the heat of the battle of this life, when they were suffering and struggling and 
crying and in pain, they wondered what was going on. Undoubtedly, they would have asked as we do, what's the point here, Lord? Why are you bringing me through this kind of experience? Do you have a plan? Do you have a purpose, Lord? Please, Lord, tell me, what are you doing? But now, from the perspective of eternity, those questions have been silenced because they see the plan in all its perfection. They understand fully. They rest content and happy in the knowledge that God's plan for them has been good. Amen, they cry. So be it, Lord. Your will be done. And from the light of eternal day, they cry back to us that all is well. And by God's grace, we too shall one day see and understand as they do. And we too shall sing our amens. But we begin to learn the melody here and now. It's here and now that our worship of God can instruct us and help us and encourage us. Under the strain of suffering and frustration, we have our questions. And yet we've got to learn to rest in the plan and in the purpose of our gracious and our sovereign Lord. And if we struggle with that, then we're encouraged to know that our Savior himself endured that same experience with the red agony of Gethsemane on his brow. He prayed, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Amen, father. So let it be. And sometimes we look into the darkness of illness <coughs> and of death and even of bereavement. Or we see a catastrophe that's about to descend on our hopes and dreams and plans. And we want to pray, Lord, please don't let this happen. I can't stand it, Lord. Please don't let it come to pass. That was certainly how it was with Peter at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took the disciples into his confidence. He told them that his hour had come. He's about to enter that theater of cosmic conflict. He's about to offer himself for the sins of his people. It was his father's will. He could do no other. And he's explaining to his disciples what's about to happen. And Peter was horrified. He couldn't accept that he might lose his Lord. Master, he said, this can't happen. I refuse to say amen to it. Whether it's God's will or not, this shall not be. And if we had been standing there with that group of disciples, we might have said the very same thing. Certainly standing on Golgotha, we would have said, Jesus, please come down from that cross. There's no way that this can be the will of God for you. And we would have longed and prayed that it would not have come to pass. And yet, if that had happened, the world would never have been saved. Heaven's door would have remained locked and bolted forever. We would never be forgiven. We would never have been justified. 
And it's very hard when we're facing the breaking point, when we're hurt by some cruel enigma of life, to learn to say amen. So let it be. But it's in the worship of God that we begin to learn to sing that note. It's through worship that we learn this lesson that if we have Christ, we have all that we need and to possess Christ and to be possessed by him is the only assurance that we need because he's the shepherd who will not desert us. He gathers the lambs in his, bosom, in his arms, carries them in his bosom. He's the good and the kind one who furnishes a table for us even when we're surrounded by our enemies. And so we learn to sing amen. So let it be. Thy will be done. But there's a second note. Worship not only leading us to accept the will of God, but it gives us a commitment to the purpose of God. Uh, In this same chapter 19, John has a vision from verse 11 onwards of the exalted Christ riding forth into battle. And behind him, Stream all the saints in glory, the armies of heaven, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, and they're on a crusade and a mission. And the divine purpose means action and service. They sing amen, your will be done, and what they mean is, Lord, help us to do it. That the amen of worship expresses a desire and a longing and a commitment to seeing God's will enacted in the world. Christianity is not all about submission, not all about resignation. It's often been misrepresented in that way. The risen, conquering Christ has inspired energy and action and courage in this world that has been unsurpassed. Unfortunately, sometimes Christians have allowed their faith to appear as a reactionary influence in a revolutionary world. But the truth is, authentic biblical Christianity is revolutionary. The first Christians were those who were described as turning the world upside down. And part of the story of the church, you see, is one of it marching right up to the most formidable and most virulent of social evils, And saying, this shall not be. This is not the will of God. We will not tolerate this tyranny a moment longer. And Christians have been active and busy in seeing abuse and injustice being destroyed in our world. For you see, the will of God is not simply something to be accepted. Not simply something to be borne with patience and resolve. It's something to be asserted. Something to be done. That the amen of worship is not always a sigh. Sometimes it's a shout. It's a call to arms. It's a battle cry. You remember there was a day when David, having brought the ark to Jerusalem, summoned the people to a new campaign. He told them of the wonderful destiny to which the Lord was now calling them. And that magnificent passage in Chronicles ends with a sudden and irrepressible shout from the whole congregation. All the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Can you imagine the sound of that great Amen echoing around the hills? The Philistines would hear it and they would tremble because they knew that Israel was on the march. 
And that's why you and I need to back up our prayers and our supplications with the resolution of our lives, that we're dedicated to the cause of Christ. Thy kingdom come, Lord. Amen. Let us be part of the answer to our prayers. Let's learn to say amen by putting our lives and our resources at Christ's disposal. That's one of the great tasks we face. Peter's been reminding us about the challenge of ministering to young people. The same challenge we face in Union College. We're seeking to place in the hands of young men and women the gospel of Christ, how to handle the word of truth. Send them out so that they can teach others to sing this same celestial song of praise. And that's your calling, it's mine, to be so committed to the cause of Christ that we echo in our lives the amen of heaven. But then thirdly, that song is also a joyful song. It's more than an amen. It's also a joyful Hallelujah. The saints in glory are eternally happy. All their sadnesses, all their sufferings, all their sorrows are swallowed up in the gladness and the felicity of heaven. In thy presence there is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And if you have lost that note of joy in your life, then it's through the worship of the Lord that you can recapture it. Isn't it interesting? how these themes sit side by side in the book of Revelation. On the one hand, Christ and his people are under pressure. On the one hand, they're suffering, they're burdened, they're oppressed, and yet there keeps breaking through this sound of joyful singing. And that really is the pattern of the Christian life, isn't it? Tragedy and triumph. Suffering and singing. Pain and praise. Amen and hallelujah. The New Testament writers speak of it as glorying in tribulation. Peter writes about suffering grief in all kinds of trials, yet, he says, being filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy. Those of us who have been involved in pastoral work know what it's like to be with people who face the most bitter experiences of life. <coughs> Excuse me. One whom comes to my mind, whom I often think about, uh, was an elder in our congregation in Carmoney. Neil was a policeman, a member of the church choir. He also sang in the RUC male voice choir. And as a 45 year old, married with three daughters, he was diagnosed with bile cancer. For three years, he fought bravely. He endured all kinds of treatment, but his condition slowly deteriorated. We'd been visiting with him almost every week during the time of his illness. And eventually, one Wednesday morning, his wife Brenda telephoned me and asked me if I'd called to see Neil. I went into his bedroom, and in his weak condition, he told me that the previous evening, he had called Brenda and the girls into the bedroom. He had read the Bible. He had prayed with them. And he cried as he told them that he was tired. He just didn't have the energy to fight the disease anymore. And he was feeling remorseful about having done that. 
and he wondered if he had done the right thing. Was it really sinful for him to want to go home to be with Jesus? And we reassured him and talked and prayed together and left him, the safe, left him in the safe and tender care of his heavenly father. In fact, as I left the home that morning, there was a sense of peace and joy in the home in a strange way. And on Friday morning, Neil passed away. I still remember standing in the packed meeting house in Carmoney with all his police colleagues and the church members present and Brenda and the girls standing there so proudly. And the police choir began to sing. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And in the midst of the deepest and saddest tragedy, there was still this note of joy and praise. The exiles in Babylon were struggling with an awful burden. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? By the rivers of Babylon we sat down, we wept when we remembered Zion. And folks, we too can complain. What room is there for singing hallelujah in the fierce and the bitter Babylon of this world in which we find ourselves? And yet there's reason to be joyful. And that's the final note, isn't it? That the reason for the joy and the exuberance of heavenly worship is because of the assurance of final victory. The saints in heaven shout hallelujah because from their perspective in the history of redemption, they see that everything has been accomplished. The conflict is past. Christ is victorious. No wonder they sing with joy. Something very significant has happened in history. There's been an advent. There's been a cross. There's been a resurrection. God in Christ has met the powers of darkness and of hell and has triumphed. Nothing has been left undone. Once and for all, atonement has been achieved. Death has been destroyed. The doors of the kingdom have been flung wide open. Once and for all, God has devised and accomplished a plan which will bring this ruined world out of its chaos and out of its darkness because the enemy is defeated. The kingdom of God is triumphant. And the saints in glory see it all so clearly. How thrilled we are when we hear the splendor and the majesty of Handel's music. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And one day, you and I are going to be part of a great cosmic hallelujah chorus. We're going to sing for eternity. 
and our hallelujahs will echo and re-echo across the universe. Fifty years after John wrote this book, many of you know the story, there was a frightening martyrdom in the city of Smyrna. Statius Quadratus was the Roman proconsul, the elderly Polycarp, bishop and saint, was brought to trial. His judge stood before him and cried, you're to renounce the Christian faith. You're to curse the name of Christ. But Polycarp replied, four score and six years have I served him. He never did me wrong. How can I revile my king and my savior? So they took him and they burned him to death in the amphitheater. But when the young church of Smyrna came to write down in its annals what had happened, it did so very thoughtfully. You could say that they did so in a spirit of defiance against Polycarp's murderers because they were very careful to put in the precise date and then they wrote, Polycarp was martyred, Statius Quadratus being proconsul of Asia, and Jesus Christ being king forever. That their suffering and their loss was set in the context of the sovereign rule of King Jesus. Nothing that their enemies could do could dethrone Christ their Lord. And folks, that's the perspective you and I need to have. Yes, we struggle. Yes, the road is much steeper. It's often rougher than we had hoped. The battle is often hard. The pain, the heartache can be debilitating. But we know where it's all headed. The outcome is assured. And this evening, amid the shadows of this world, we can lift our eyes. We can join our voices with the church triumphant in the presence of our Lord himself. We can sing the praise of our Redeemer, who even now is gathering his kingdom, whose glory will one day cover the earth, even as the waters cover the sea. We have a great and a glorious future before us. So we sing, Amen. Your will be done, Lord. And we sing, Hallelujah. May your praise be sung. The 24 elders, the four living creatures fell down. They worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen. Hallelujah.